Has your brand been struggling to reach the correct audience when advertising? We've all done it. Maximize privacy filters on our phones and apps because who wants to be talking about something for it to pop up mysteriously later? It's weird and everyone hates it. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. You know how much we love Zencaster, and their new creator network is no different. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's creator network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's creator network is a perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favorite creators, like us. So stop wasting advertising dollars on ad campaigns that aren't targeting your niche audience. Let Zencaster's Creator Network match you with podcasters who can ensure that your target audience is being reached. We love Zencaster so much, and being able to see ad opportunities come across our dashboard with a percentage match to see how much our audiences line up is game-changing. It helps creators really get behind brands that mean something to them. And with a podcast show for just about anything you can think of, your brand is no exception. Are you interested in sponsoring this show or podcast ads for your business? Go to zen.ai slash gruesome and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Welcome to Gruesome, your horrific true crime podcast. I'm Karen, your patron saint of wholesomeness, fresh in from the bayou, excited to join Connie and Meg today as Connie takes us to a deep dive of Jeanette De Palma. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. Yes. You did it. She did it. Isn't she Nailed so it. everyone? <laughs> Snaps for Karen. Snaps. Snaps for Karen. She did it. Welcome well, to the show. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Welcome to your late episode this week. Um, what a week. A, yeah, a car hit a pole, like, down the street in my neighborhood. So we lost power. I couldn't work for, like, two days. And then the internet was out following that when the power came back on. And then the universe gave Meg a same dose because she also lost power this morning. <laughs> I, you know what's so weird about that, though? Last night or before the power went out I put my kid to bed and before she went to sleep she said mom the power's gonna go out at six but it'll be back on at 6 30 and I was like what are you talking about she's like the power and I think she's just really perceptive and she must have heard someone else talking about it like earlier in the day and she was like the power will be out at six tomorrow but it's gonna come back on at six oh it was like a planned outage I don't know. I still don't know because I woke up and I was sitting at my table at 5.55 and the power went out at 6 and I just went, what just happened? Because she does witchy things sometimes and I was like, is is this like, (laughs) what just happened? Um, But I think she probably just heard someone talk about it and... That's actually a perfect segue because it's a very witchy occult-filled case today. Oh, good. Perfect. (laughs) I love it when that happens. This week, we are going to talk about the horrific and bizarre case of Jeanette De Palma, a case that has puzzled investigators for 50 years. 
Because yes, I'm going to rip that bandaid off for you two ladies right now and let you know that this case is still unsolved. Thank you for the warning. Before I got too invested and was like, how dare you? I do that to you guys too much. So I will give you, we've had a rough enough week. I'll just let you guys know. So September 1st, I'm going to give you guys a trigger warning. Um, There are a lot of details regarding the case as far as what had happened, but I will give you a trigger warning when I start talking about the manner in which the body was found because it is, it's pretty gruesome without trying this out. Like, Would you say it's gruesome? gruesome? Maybe yeah. Horrific? Exactly. Right. And I just want to, I'll just give you that heads up now. September 19th, 1972 started off like any other Tuesday for patrolman Daniel Schwert. He was patrolling the north side of Springfield, New Jersey. A call came in around 11 from an apartment complex's elderly superintendent. She was frantic. She had recently, like moments before, let out an ear-piercing scream as her eyes were drawn to a human severed arm at her feet. She walked out her door, and that's what her eyes were drawn to. At first, Officer Swirt thought that maybe this was a prank by some of the kids who lived in the apartment complex because the lady, I mean, she's the super, so she was always being harassed. They were throw, they would like throw trash in her yard, you know, just like shithead kids stuff. Rude. <laughs> it's also kind of close to Halloween. Like I could yeah. get why they might see that. He quickly realized by the fingernails and the color of the skin, which he described as maroonish and leathery, that this was no mannequin, and it had definitely been in the elements for some time. He immediately called for backup, requesting that the detectives be dispatched. It was determined that one of the dogs that lived in the complex had ran around that morning, like a big Dalmatian, and had likely brought it back from its run. Gross. A small search party of officers was formed to look for the body that the arm had belonged to. Schwert was included. His shift had ended at 3 o'clock that day. But he went home, changed, and immediately came right back to help. The officers couldn't shake the sinking feeling in their stomachs that the arm could belong to Jeanette De Palma, a teenager who had been reported as a runaway in the area, the only missing person in the area, six weeks prior. Ooh, six weeks, that's a long time. Mm Mm-hmm. Jeanette Christine De Palma was born on August 2nd, 1956. She had just celebrated her 16th birthday. She was born in Jersey City, New Jersey. She was born to parents Florence and Salvatore De Palma. Her mom was a homemaker. Her dad, the owner and operator of D&D Auto Salvage in Newark. Jeanette was the sixth of seven children. This large Italian Catholic family moved to Springfield in the mid-1960s. Florence and Salvatore thought the quiet small town would be the perfect place to raise their large family. In Springfield, the family was always considered outsiders. I guess so you have like, I thought of it when I was, is like Pawnee and Eagleton. So you have like the old <laughs> Springfield, like kind of like at the bottom of a hill. And then like further up, they had this new development area and that's where the De Palmas lived. And people didn't like it because they had to add like new fire trucks and police and all of that. And the lower income, like typical residents, older residents of Springfield, they're the ones that had to pay for it like all of the extras that the town needed. So they there was already like that 
Eagleton Pawnee thing going on. Like, So they moved to Eagleton? They moved to Eagleton. Okay, got it. Check. I can follow that. The family kept to themselves. They did not get too involved with their neighbors. Police were called to the residence on several occasions for domestic disputes between Florence and Salvatore. Each time when the police got there, Florence said the same thing. Well, there was an issue, but there isn't anymore. And that was it. Now, when I started researching this case, because I had heard about it for years and I've read about it several times, the one thing that I never expected was how much I would relate to Jeanette. You see, you guys knew me in high school. I was one of the kids, especially Karen. I was one of the kids in high school that was dubbed like the wild child. Guys thought I was promiscuous. Girls hated me for it. Some innocent partying led to rumors of drug use and promiscuity. For the first couple of years of high school, it was literally a living hell for me. Girls were really mean. Guys would talk to me thinking like they were going to be able to sleep with me. And in reality, most of the rumors were just that. They were just rumors. When I got stabbed freshman year, we've talked about that one here before. The story changed time and time again to the point that I was the one who did the stabbing. And I get the feeling that Jeanette had a similar fate in school. The book, Death of the Death on Devil's Teeth, The Strange Murder That Shocked Suburban New Jersey by Jesse Polek and Mark Moran painted the same picture. A lot of interviews were conducted during the course of writing the book, and the stories were all the same. People who didn't really know Jeanette spoke of a wild child who used drugs, everything from marijuana to harder drugs, being found in the backseat with boys, hitchhiking, involvement with the occult, even rumors about her family, especially her dad, being heavily involved with the mafia. A police officer boasted how he pulled her out of back seats on more than one occasion, although that was refuted by other officers on the force, including Schwartz. But those who knew her, close friends and family, they tell the story of a beautiful, misunderstood girl, one who did have her streak of a wild side, but nothing serious and nothing outside the ordinary teenager things. Maybe some marijuana use, and even though she did like to kiss boys, it wasn't anything like the stories that were being spread about her. A girl who was trying to turn her life around. She started going to church. She was developing a relationship with Jesus. They spoke of her kindness, her willingness to be there for her friends, and her big heart. And I think the trouble, especially in small towns like this, is that anyone who is different is often a subject of speculation. I remember hearing stories about the girl who was kidnapped and how she was goth and a punk rock girl, when in reality, Megan was the best person that I met in school. Quietness is often mistaken for bitchiness or you're weird. And I think that Jeanette was a normal teenager in a town with big rumors, and those rumors were only amplified following her disappearance. Also, it was the 70s. It was the 70s. If she was hitchhiking, that's normal. If she was smoking weed, that's normal. (laughs) Like That's what one of her friends said. She said, we were hippie Jesus freaks. Yeah, we hitchhiked sometimes, and we smoked a little dope, but, like, that's it. I was like, saint. Like... We were just (laughs) hanging out with boys we didn't really know. (laughs) Officer Schwer and crew started searching the surrounding areas for clues regarding the origin of the arm. Interstate 78 was in the process of being built, and they were following the unfinished dirt bed looking for clues when they found the upper portion of the arm likely to have fallen off as the dog was carrying it. He recalled walking through the brush up a hill, 
that was so steep, he was literally pulling himself up by shrubs and small trees. When he got to the top of the knoll, his heart sank. He spotted a body right away. Recognizing the blue t-shirt and tan pants as the description given when Jeanette disappeared, he knew that he had found the girl that everyone had believed to have run away. Having been exposed to the elements for the past several weeks, her body was severely decomposed. Animals had eaten most of the flesh around her feet and her head, and it was described that her body was literally rotting into the ground. Oof, yikes. Yeah. That's, I was like, I'm going to give a trigger warning for that because that's pretty brutal. Aside from the gruesome sight of Jeanette's corpse, he immediately recognized the wooden cross that was found over her head. So like she was laying face down, it was above her head. And the stones that were arranged in a semicircle, almost like a halo. Officers flocked to the area. The hill in which the body was found, like I said, was so steep. It overlooked the quarry below. And this, so this wasn't a normal pass with where hikers would just be like gallivanting. There wasn't a trail to get up there. Someone, I have a question. Mm -hmm. So her body was on the ground and someone had put like a cross above her head with like rocks in a circle around it. Is that what I'm picturing? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So like she's laying on the ground to the north of her head would be, so the cross was in the ground up. Or like like sticking out. Okay. Yes. Like a like a marker. Like, like a, a marker, marker, exactly. Okay. Someone had to be up there intentionally. This isn't somewhere like you don't just stumble upon this place. All of the officers thought the same thing when they investigated the scene. This looks like witchcraft. The hill where the body was found was known as Devil's Teeth. Described as an abysmal and spooky place. It was so steep and overgrown with thorn bushes that they couldn't even carry her remains down the hill. They had to call in fire trucks to lower her body down from the quarry side. Other than her flip-flops, leather flip-flops that were found near the body, there was no other evidence that could point to the cause of death. Nearby, they found a pile of the um, what was in her purse, but her purse was never found. Someone has that purse. Yeah. And there was also um, later on her parents, because like she had her clothes on still. So they were wondering, she had a necklace that she always wore and that necklace was also gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the fire truck backed up against the rocky side of the cliff. An 85 foot ladder was raised to halfway up the cliff's edge. The body was carefully put into a body bag with the detectives doing everything they could to preserve the already fragile integrity of the body. The body was then loaded onto a stretcher where it was then lowered onto the quarry floor and quarry floor. I said that weird. Sorry guys. In a similar fashion that you would see on disaster rescue videos. The medical examiner, Dr. Bernard Ehrenberg was not a trained pathologist. So a lot of the officers were really like they were not really surprised when he couldn't determine a cause of death. One of the officers. So decomposed too, right? Like she was. Extremely decomposed. Yeah. Like I don't think you have to imagine too hard what six weeks in the elements will do to a person's body. Yeah, but the yeah. he was already kind of like on the shit list of a lot of a lot of the officers. One of the officers, Ed Kish, was interviewed for the book I had talked about above, and he said that 
The guy was a friggin' physician. You know how Bernie Ehrenberg got his job political appointment. Bernie was not competent enough to have been conducting forensic autopsies. I know for a fact that he botched the autopsy of another high-profile murder victim that was found up on Springville Top. The body was... So he... And we're going to talk about this other body that was found. I was going to ask, because like, another body on Springfield Top? (laughs) Okay. The body was transferred to the Elizabeth General Hospital to see if maybe an x-ray could determine if there was any bone breaks, fractures, knife strikes, or bullet holes. But the x-rays determined to be absent of all of these things. The dentist from town, who was actually the son of, like, the dentist in town. This kid was fresh out of dental school. Like he had barely been practicing and he was tasked with the, they came, the um, officers came and they were like, you need to come with us. And he's like, am I arrested? And they were like, no, we have a body you have to identify. You couldn't, you couldn't give that to the old, like the older dentist to be like, Hey, maybe someone with a little, a couple more years on him could take a peek at this. So this is where a lot of this mafia speculation, you start seeing this a lot because he would not even agree in this book. He would not even agree to have his name released because he did not want the family to know who he was. The dentist? Yes. It's oh. like they already do. You're their dentist. But the way he explained it, the his dad took care of the older patients and he took care of the younger patients. So Jeanette was his patient. It's like how many dentists are in town that are a father-son duo? Like, we're going to be able to narrow you down, friend. Yes. Just saying. It's just known as, like, the dentist. The dentist. It's very (laughs) mafia-like. But he was afraid of the mafia coming after him. It's like, bro, are you in the mafia? So he was given the corpse's mandible and asked to compare it against the x-rays that he had taken earlier that summer when he gave Jeanette fillings. He was able to identify her by her dental records. The body found on Devil's Teeth was, without a doubt, determined to be the body of Jeanette De Palma. Before her clothes could be sent to a forensic lab to be examined, they had to be dried out. I guess that was like a requirement at that time. Her clothes were hanging over a large air conditioner for three or four days in the precinct. Officer Schwartz said that they were literally hung up on a makeshift clothesline smelling up the entire department. And if you are not, yeah, if you are not familiar, the smell of death is undeniable and unlike anything anyone will ever smell. Once you smell it, you can recognize it immediately. Wouldn't they just bag that stuff immediately? They're not like, why are they drying it out? Is that a thing they do? There were maggots all over it. Okay. Okay. Never mind. (laughs) It'd been outside for six weeks. Oof. Okay. I'm picturing it. Next. Mm -hmm. Keep going. (laughs) According to a few different officers, once the detectives got to the scene, everything became pretty hush-hush hush as far as the details were concerned and the patrolmen and the officers who discovered the body were essentially like kind of shoved out so what happened the details surrounding her disappearance aren't widely known but her cousin lisa grulick shared in the book what she does know she was told that Jeanette came downstairs from her room for breakfast and during breakfast her parents had told her that lisa the cousin who's telling the story had ran away from home a month prior 
she was mad and upset that her parents had known about this for a month and they chose now to just kind of dump it on her because her her and her cousin were pretty close she was mad that no one thought to tell her which rightful like i would be upset about that too so she did run away or she seemingly ran away one day we'll talk about we're we're doing we're getting to it right okay. now we're getting to it she called her friend Gail Donahue and said that she wasn't able to come over because her mom was going to make her scrub the bathrooms. But Gail thought she was just trying to get her out of, like, she just didn't want to come over. So she told her, get your ass over here because the guys are on their way. She said that she bugged her because they had met a couple of guys at Echo Lake Park the day before, and they were supposed to meet up with them. Jeanette told Gail, all right, I'll hitchhike over. And that was the last time that she heard from her friend. She never thought anything of her hitchhiking because that's what they did. It's like Meg said, it's the 70s. That's just what you do. Her sister, Cindy, she was younger than her, so she's the seventh child, said that she was asked by Jeanette to go over there with her, but she didn't go because she was arguing with her boyfriend and wanted to stay by the phone, something she said that she has felt guilty for her entire life, which I remember those days, (laughs) like before we... Some of our like Gen Z listeners won't understand, but there used to be a time where you didn't have a cell phone and like you had to wait by a house phone for people to call you. They're supposed to call me. I can't go anywhere. There are different reports regarding Jeanette's employment situation, but allegedly she told her mom that she was walking the three miles to take a train to Summit where her job was, only she was leaving out the part that she actually intended to hitchhike to Gail's. She stopped by her friend, unannounced, Donna Blattis, but Donna was grounded and wasn't allowed to have people over, and allegedly Donna's parents didn't want her around Jeanette because they caught them sneaking boys over and hiding them in a bush during a party, which was very on brand for me. (laughs) It's like, I would have done that. She supposedly asked Mrs. Blattis for a ride, but she was refused, so she went on her way. Now, we are going to get to some theories about the Blattis residents here in a little bit regarding what could have happened and like what some people think happened. But by all accounts, the Blattises are the last people to see Jeanette alive. That evening, when Jeanette didn't come home from work, her parents started to get worried and started to call around to her friends' houses. But no one had heard from her. No one had seen her. And they felt an uneasy feeling, so they alerted the authorities. They were told that her daughter had their daughter had to be missing for another 24 hours before she could be officially reported as missing. And then she was listed as a runaway because she left on her own. There wasn't much drawn attention drawn to it because of this runaway status, but she did not run away. She was just going places. Like she, she didn't take any clothes with her. She didn't take anything with her. She just had her purse and that was it. The rumors started to swirl about her running away as they do in a small town. The rumor was that she had ran away to New York and even the detectives who questioned her friend um, that I talked about above, Gail, um, she was, that's the idea that the detectives were shoving down her throat. They were like, she's like, okay. Ran away to New York, right? That's what she told you she was doing? Sorry, that was my old, yeah. old-timey old cop voice. <laughs> that's, what they, that's how I would have pictured it too. <laughs> Gail said that she, like, she believed, like, she was like, okay, maybe she did run away to New York. It's, I get the feeling that these two were very close because she was like, if she was running away, I would have known. And so, but by the time, like, the detectives were done talking to her, they were like, maybe she, she's like, maybe she did run away. And she just expected that at some point Jeanette would reach out to her. 
A few weeks later, they began to shift their efforts to foul play. They interrogated one of her guy friends. And the assumption is he was probably only questioned because he was like a nonconformist who listened to Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. They were like, you killed Jeanette. And he was like, wait, no, no, I didn't. He's like, I was way too high to be able to do anything like that. Yeah, I didn't do any of that. And nothing ever came from it. People had big feelings about Jeanette because she, and I, like I said, I felt so connected in that the sense that she didn't smile a lot she kind of just like kept her head down when she was walking actually it reminded me a lot of how you would walk around school like just kind of like head down like i'm not hair in the face hair in the face she had long dark hair and straight hair was a thing so she was always like brushing her hair to because she had like naturally like wavy curly hair so she was brushing it constantly she wore this like dark jacket with a rainbow on the back and listen to Janis Joplin. Like, I was like, we, this is my vibe. Like, this is me. But to this day, because there has been no cause of death that has been able to be identified, her death still isn't listed as a homicide. It's listed as a suspicious death, which we'll talk about in a few because that right there makes it extremely difficult for more advances in the case. Guys, we blinked and summer is almost over. For parents, that means we are sending our kids back to school and we know how important it is to start days off with a healthy, nutritious breakfast. Unfortunately, healthy and nutritious usually don't align with what our kids are hungry for. Never fear, parents. Magic Spoon takes the guilt out of those busy mornings. Magic Spoon comes in a variety pack with four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. This pack has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs. Also, only 140 calories a serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. Our kids can experience the cereal we had as kids, only now it's super nutritious. Go to magicspoon.com gruesome to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code gruesome at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So let's talk about theories. Well, I'm just, what was with the rocks, you know? How can they say, like, they could say suspicious death? You think she just got down that ravine on her own? Like Exactly. That's, that's been a big thing, because it's like, you're not getting up there by yourself. Like, no. So she was found up high or, like, down low in a room? She was at the top of that hill. Oh, okay. So there's no mistaking. Yeah, she was at the very top of the hill. But we can't talk about this case without mentioning the occult and this satanic ritual. Because if you do a quick Google of this case, that is all you're going to find. You'll see where people say that a cult targeted Jeanette because she was spreading the word of God to members of a satanic church, urging them to leave Satanism behind. You'll see stories that animals were sacrificed in the areas around where Jeanette was found. Some even saying that they were literally, there were sacrifices tied to trees around where she was found. You'll see reports. There was a, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. You'll see reports of crosses being found like all over, like all around her body, like little crosses. You'll see stories about 
how there was a cult called the witches who were going around telling people that they were going to kill a child around Halloween as a sacrifice. And I can't say whether or not this case has a cult link or not. What I can say is that there were two officers who confirmed the stone formation around her head and the cross above her head. The coroner's report also reported this. A cousin went to where Jeanette's body was found and said that in the area where her body had decomposed into the ground, because you could literally see the outline of it still, um, there were small makeshift wooden crosses all around it. Jeanette's nephew, John Bancy, and his friend, Edward Salzano, made it their mission to find out what happened to Jeanette. And after Bancy passed away, Salzano became even more determined to bring her killer to justice. He started a Facebook page. We'll link it in the show notes. And there's like, he's done the most. He sued the Union County Prosecutor's Office. He wanted them to retest her clothing for DNA because there were stains found on her clothing, including her underwear. But they were determined to be too, too decomposed for them to test. And it's 2022, so we know that DNA testing has improved immensely like that's the most significantly yeah it's the biggest understatement oh it's improved that's like a huge understatement her fingernails were never tested for dna either and he was requesting that and a lot of these weren't happening because the death death was listed as a suspicious death and not a homicide the case was thrown out pretty much the judge said that he can't tell investigators how to investigate a case even though changing the case the cost of death to homicide would open a lot more doors. The occult was also mentioned quite a bit because just a year prior to Jeanette's death, John List, who lived in nearby Westfield, murdered his entire family. He shot his wife and two kids in the head one by one. And then when he got home from his other son's soccer game, he shot that kid in the chest and the face many times before placing each of their bodies in a sleeping bag and arranging them in a line in his ballroom. He also shot his mom, but he left her in the attic of the home. The bodies were left for over a month before they were discovered. And Liss had moved I've to- I've read about that one before. Yeah, that yep. sucks. Liss had moved to Virginia to start an entirely new life. A book of witchcraft was found inside his home, fueling the belief that it was an occult-related act with people even saying that his daughter was a practicing witch. In reality, it's most likely that he murdered his family because he had got he lost his job and they were about to go broke and he was trying to in his head he was trying to save his family the embarrassment of that because they were very affluent at the time. Oh right. By murdering them. That'll definitely save them. And then just moving to Virginia and starting a new life. MBD Another Look, okay. murder. Rock. Go ahead. Yeah, that's what. Well, that's what I was thinking. Like, okay, one, if it's occulty and there's crosses everywhere, like, do crosses go with the occult stuff, or is that a separate? I was like, that doesn't really make sense to me. And two, no. was that you said there was another body found? What? What were the circumstances there? What? What were there little so, crosses? That, were there halo rocks? What's going on? No. The other body that I was referring to that was the medical examiner kind of botched. We're going to talk about that at the very end because that is not this other murder that I'm getting ready to discuss. The area was rocked again the year before when 20-year-old Patrick Michael Newell was thrown into a sand pit pond after having his hands 
bound and his feet bound together behind his back. What is a sandpit pond? It's like a man-made pond. Okay. When the sand and gravel is mined below the water table of the groundwater, it creates a sound, a sand pit lake. So they're like mining underneath it. Okay. I got you. But this happened. He was thrown in this sand pit pond by his friends. His friends told him that Newell belonged to a Satan worshiper sect and that he, Newell, felt that he had to die violently to be in charge of 40 leagues of demons. He said they performed a satanic ritual before Newell instructed them to kill him in a violent manner. Okay. Well, that's that's one way to get out of a murder charge. Yeah. This is what they did. And remember, this is only three years after the Manson family murders. So it's not quite like the satanic panic that was like all over in the 80s, but we're really gearing up to it. That's, I mean, this is what started that, though. This is just these kinds of things happening mm-hmm. started making people believe that, I don't know, all rumors start from something that happened, yes. you know? And I know and you're talking... Go ahead. The, when you were talking about, like, the crosses, like, is that even, like, an occult thing? They brought in a witch. And this witch was like, we don't even... This is not even what we do. These aren't even our symbols. Like, this is not us. Sounds awfully, like, it sounds kind of Catholic, honestly. Yeah. Ooh. (laughs) There was, yeah, there was another theory of a transient man named Red, who was a caddy at the local golf course. Some of the theories surrounding this was that this man may have come across Jeanette when she was partying nearby because he lived in the woods. Like, he had almost like a little tiny cave in the woods. And maybe she screamed or something and he panicked and tried to quiet her. And maybe it was like he didn't mean to kill her. Some people thought the crosses were his way of like heading, you know, visiting the site. Apologizing. And it was further driven by the fact that even though he had been in the area for years, he quickly left the area following the murder and he was never seen again, like in that area. He was a transient that lived in a cave. But he was also a golf caddy. <laughs> it's like very wild. Whose name was Red. <laughs> Again, I think this is the least likely of uh-huh, what happened yeah. in this case. But there's, a, like I said, there's several theories. So we're going to go through them because I ha- we, there's a lot. There was another theory of a watchman of the quarry. Um, his name was Tommy Relo. Tommy was mentally handicapped, having the mental capacity of about a 14-year-old, even though he was 30. He was friendly with police, and apparently he was never questioned, but he was in the immediate area where she was found. So, again, small-town rumors. Further on, her cousin reported having a vision of Jeanette getting into a green car after hitchhiking and then arriving at the foot of Devil's Teeth and, like, walking up there together. She said that she woke up her parents. They were kind of like, go back to sleep, and that nothing ever came from that. My love language is gift-giving. And one of my favorite things to give is an experience, which is why Let's Make Art is so awesome, because I can send my best friend Connie or even her kids the gift of learning how to paint and create. Anyone can have art supplies delivered right to their door in the form of monthly subscriptions, project kits, and supplies for a variety of activities. Whether you're a total beginner or you've mastered the arts, 
The supplies and tutorials in each art box are designed to encourage, support, and enhance your experience with art. Let's Make Art has taken the guesswork out of crafting and created kits for various mediums and interests. You can follow along with free tutorials courtesy of Let's Make Art's in-house artists to learn how to paint with watercolor or acrylics, or you could pick up art journaling. Go to letsmakeart.com and start your next art project today. Be sure to use our promo code GRUESOMEART, all one word, at checkout to save 20% off your first order. We've posted our special link in the show notes, and remember to use Gruesome Art to save 20% off. Thank you, Let's Make Art, for sponsoring this episode. And then there is this theory of a man in a red car. So a boy a couple of years older than Jeanette, who was apparently very fond of her, even though she didn't reciprocate the feelings, he was heavily evolved in the occult, going as far as he was kissing a girl and he stopped because she had a diamond cross-shaped necklace and he was like, I can't. I can't touch this. He was also accused of raping another girl in the area around the same time. He believed he was a warlock, I guess. And Jeanette had said on many occasions that he did creep her out. A woman named Rose McNaughton wrote into weird New Jersey, so it's like weird NJ. It's a magazine slash website that um, they, one of the writers of this website is who went on, that Mark Moran, who went on further to investigate for his book. And he interviewed every single person you could think of involved in this case. But she stands by that this Mike guy is the one responsible for her death. And they had his, he said that he knew, like they gave, this lady gave him the full name, but because he's never been like an official suspect and he does have like a family now that he just listed his first name, which I get, but she swears that this Mike guy is the one responsible for her death. He didn't live very far from Jeanette's home and where he lived bordered an area called Wachung, Wachung. I don't know how to pronounce that. And someone's going to say something to me about it. Reservation, which is an area where witches, warlocks and devil worshipers are supposed to meet and run amok. He lit the rumor. Yep, that's the rumor. He lives only two blocks from the intersection where Jeanette was last seen. And Jeanette had taken rides for Mike before. So it isn't out of left field that she would have gotten into this car with him because she needed a ride and she knew him. So like, did he make an advance and fly into a rage when she didn't go along with it? The Emmy said that it wasn't out of line to think that maybe Jeanette had been strangled. But because of the advanced decomp, there was no way to say really for sure. And then there is a theory about a serial killer. And I don't want to dive too deep into this because once I started reading about it, this is a whole other episode in itself. And I'm definitely going to cover it in the near future. But Jeanette's sister, Carol, had mentioned in one of her meetings, she was seeing a therapist for about three weeks about her sister's murder. And she was stopped immediately and told that the therapist was treating someone who was involved with her sister's case and she would have to seek treatment somewhere else. Nothing else, yes, nothing else was ever said, and she had just no idea what this therapist was talking about. Okay, but that, but like that could have been any, that could have been like a police officer involved in the case. That could have been like the medical examiner, it could have been the The dentist. Yes, (laughs) because there were a lot of people involved in this case who took leaves of app, like leaves of absence afterwards. They they called it the um, De Palma curse because one of the men took his own life 
in a, a few years following her murder, um, a couple of the men, like they couldn't even work anymore because that's how severe the decomposition was when they found her body. And a lot of these guys had kids her age. And probably because they left her clothes hanging in their office for the uh, three yeah, days or whatever. Exactly. So the therapist comes into play when we start to talk about Otto Neil Nilsson. He went to trial for the murder of Joan Kramer, another local girl who was murdered on August 16th, 1972. Wait, she was the before? She, yes, she was the, well, it would have been about the same time because it was like two weeks later. Oh, right, because she had been there for six weeks. Mm -hmm. So it would have been two weeks after Jeanette would have potentially been murdered. And okay. she is the, she is presumed to be the high, high profile case that was botched because even though all signs pointed, pointing, like pointed to this guy doing it, he was found not guilty due to lack of evidence. But the prosecutor, to the prosecutor, the case was so solid that they consider it closed. A few years after her murder, Kramer's family was um, stalked by Nilsson. That's actually like how the whole thing came about. He was in therapy for being schizophrenic. Two other murders, Marianne Pryor and Lorraine Kelly, both of these women were found in very similar instances like Kramer and Jeanette, both were found in wooded areas. After Nielsen was committed, there were zero other murders in the area that resembled those four murders. He was committed? He was committed to a psychiatric ward. Like where he couldn't leave forever or well, for a while? There are notes in his psychiatric record because he was committed around the time Jeanette was supposed to be murdered or the two other girls were supposed to be murdered. But in his psychiatric record, there is notes of him escaping. Mm -hmm. So he, he was escaped. Found. He escaped, but he was found. But there were murders while he was escaped. But he was committed again, where he lived out the rest of his life. In like that's where he lived, and there were no other murders in the area after that. When did he die? So he died on March second, nineteen ninety two. Unfortunately, any secrets he had died with him. But he was known to write these erratic letters to the judge and other members of the case. So, and they were very, if you read the book, it has all of them in there. It's I was going to say, are the letters in the book? Because I would really like to see those letters. Yes. And the book is on Kindle Unlimited, if you guys have it. And it is fantastic. I literally read it in a day. That's how good it was. So now we're going to talk about one last final theory. And it's one that I want your guys' thoughts on when we're all done. Because in order of likeliness of things, like what I think happened, I think Nilsson is probably right up there, number one. But I think this theory is also less plausible. dramatic, but plausible. Remember when we were talking about Blattis, like the family, the Blattis family? Yeah. Well, there is this huge theory that maybe because there were a lot of parties at the Blattis home, like on the regular, that there was an incident with at one of these parties because they had a party the day that Jeanette went missing. Why were there a lot of parties there? Like just because they had like where they had a town a lot, I don't understand. All of these interviews were like there were people over here 24-7. Like they always had people over. So I don't know if it was something her their parents were okay with or if they were out a lot. But Donna had two brothers, Mark and Richard, 
And it is speculated that maybe she was at the party and overdosed and her body was disposed of to hide the evidence. At the top of a hill, like a mountain, whatever it is. The problem with that theory comes with how steep Devil's Teeth is. And she was found with leather sandals nearby. So there's no way that she could have made it up the hill by herself. And because like grown men in hiking boots were having trouble getting up there. Someone had to be up there with her. And it's unlikely that it would have been possible for someone to carry her up there if she was already deceased. And honestly, there are so many other wooded areas in the area. Like, why would you choose that? But that brings me to what the other possible thing I was thinking about. Many people believe that she was up there with a group of people because in this area, there's like the golf course nearby. And this is an area where people were known to party. Did she, were they up there and she accidentally overdosed on something like LSD or another drug and whoever she was with panicked and just left her there? So LSD was relatively new to the area and she was known to hang out with kids who indulged in such pastimes. Although Salzano was unable to get investigations changed in the case when he filed his lawsuit, he was able for some of the crime scene photos to be released because he Um, cited the Freedom of Information Act. Good for him. And this is, unless crosses were moved prior, these crime scene photos kind of debunk a theory of a satanic ritual. And I'm going to post them. They have the, where her body was is blacked out. So you won't see any of that. But she was found with her hand under her head as if she was sleeping, which seems to me to be consistent with a possible, possible overdose. Can you overdose on LSD? Isn't that one of the ones that it's like, you you can, but it's... If you're mixing (laughs) with other stuff, maybe. Yeah, I I think if you mix it with something else, I've I've never had experience with someone overdosing with LSD. Not to say it couldn't happen, but I don't know. Just Google it. (laughs) And then the thought, like, because the area was where, like, the witches would hang out, did she overdose and then these occult members come and do this ritual, like, afterward? Like, put stuff around her afterwards? Look, I'm going to tell you, I don't buy that theory. The, like, I don't really the buy the Odo overdose on LSD and then was left there and then the occult came and no. I think it's probably a killer guy. I don't see in the pictures any of these crosses that they were talking about. And that's because these are actual crime scene photos. Now, what's crazy and why everyone is screaming like there's this huge cover up is because there is no documentation from this case. They're citing that in 1999, Hurricane Floyd came through and everything was flooded. They lost everything. These crime scene photos, apparently, like... I don't know. It seems a little sketchy. I see why people are thinking like there's some cover up or some big misstep that happened, but it's very odd. The only reason why I am a little hesitant in regards to Nilsson is because Kramer was killed with a pickaxe and it was very evident how she was killed. Yeah. And if even if the advanced stages of decomp are there, if you are being hit with something with such force it's going to leave marks on your bones especially like a fucking pickaxe yeah but she was so decomposed that they couldn't tell like what well they did left they, of her 
her skeleton because the skeleton doesn't decompose. So yeah, like, okay. And they did an x-ray on it. So I was thinking if it was some like brutal attack like that, would it not show in an x-ray? I don't know. Unless he, unless he changed like how he did it. My money's mm-hmm. on him with the crosses and even like how her hand was behind her. Like because schizophrenia and schi- yeah, schizoaffective disorders. Well, she was a lot like of religious. Okay. It was like this. Like it, it's like this. Like if she like, were, like she's like, sleeping like, though. Yeah. Like she's sleeping. Like, I, like it's. Yeah. Because they have a like a lot of people with that diagnosis can fixate like on religious things, so that's where I think like the cross. It's kind of like the yeah, her. It's like my a, money's on that. There's also a wild theory that I wasn't gonna put out there, but we can't deny this mafia connection. So we can't. The, the connection is that her dad is in the mafia. Was that what you said? Yeah, her dad was in the mafia, and we know that. I don't want to get murdered, but sometimes mobsters retaliation is pretty effing brutal. Yeah. Something like that. But like with mobsters, like they want you to know what they did. Yeah. They wouldn't have hidden it on the top of a peak. It's weird that it was like, that's the thing. They would have left her in the, in the bedroom or something or where they were like sending a message. Yeah. I don't know. It could just be there. Karen. It's true. It's just so many wild theories that come from this. And it's like a game of telephone in small town. Like in this book, they post, they were like every letter or message they've got regarding this post. Like some of them are like asking for like to be anonymous. And some of them are wild. They're like, oh, my such and such was there. There were bunny, dead bunnies tied to trees. And I was like, what the fuck, man? Like, like what was every like a game of grape grapevine where like everything just gets more extreme gets as time more and on. more extreme and what's crazy is the coroner's report said there were these rock formations you do not see that in the crime scene photos and her so, body was not in a position where they could have moved it you know what i mean like they yeah, weren't do you think they like were just like maybe kick them away or move them away before the photos were taken it's my thought is maybe they were just part of the elements. Like maybe it's coincidental. Like maybe but you're the up there just in that shape. Yeah. That like, or just like they weren't completely in that shape. I don't know. Cause I am a very like picture oriented person and I looked at these crime and I don't see it. Like I don't see any of that. So there wasn't even like the one sticking out of the ground, like as a marker. You said no. earlier. Mm. But it's described in the reports. It's described in the reports. And that's why people are like, mm. what is this? Like, mm. yeah, did they so see weird. this? And they were like, we're not going to, we don't want that element of this case to be out. Like, do we want to brush that under the rug? Because, like, like I said, them out and they were like, nope, not today. Just make that go away. It was, well, when the patrol, like like I said, when the detectives got there, they pretty much booted the the patrolmen right out of there. So what the fuck were the detectives doing? Because the patrolmen are the one who like photographed it when they first got there. And then the detective, well, I guess the detectives did as well. But for the medical examiner, because the detectives had to sit there for the medical examiner to get there to legally declare the victim as deceased before they could do anything else. And he saw it because it's in his notes. 
That's weird. Um, That's what makes this case so frustrating. Because of the exposure to the elements, because of all of this game of telephone, and she did this, and she did that, and this was going on at the time. It's been 50 years, and I mean, it's still just listed as, her death is still just listed as a suspicious death, and it's not even listed as a homicide. Yeah, I would like to hear more about uh, Auto Dude. Oh, yeah, it's coming, because I can't, like, that's a huge one, and I... I wanted to do a deep dive today, but I was like, this is a whole other episode and I'm going to cover it because it's effing wild. I need to know more. Um, Wow. Well, I'm sad Mm -hmm. for Jeanette De Palma and her family. That sucks. Yeah. I've never gotten any kind of closure on that. There was like the, her um, mom had like hired investigators. One of the investigators said like, this is a huge cover up. Something is going on. And then so she hired another investigator and that investigator had a heart attack before they could finish their investigation. And she went to the grave not knowing what happened to her daughter. That's horrible. So sad. And they said from the beginning, her parents knew that she didn't run away. But like that's, again, small town, game of telephone. And because she left the house willingly that day, like on so her, her parents own. said it pretty like reported it pretty quickly. But her cousin didn't find out about it for a month. Even no. though they were like homies? No. So Jeanette was mad because her cousin was the one that had ran away. That's what Oh, okay. That I misunderstood that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Her cousin had ran away like a month before because I guess that was something like she did frequently. So that's what upset Jeanette the day she disappeared. Hmm. I don't know. Her being on top of a hill just... It's weird. That's the strangest part. I could understand... Some of these other like more blase theories if she were found just in a woods, but when they were or describing like thrown down a ravine, like I thought you said at first, like Yeah. No, she was like, at the top of this forty foot hill that you had to literally hike up. Like the officer was saying he was pulling on trees to pull himself up. Like you're not hiking up that hill in leather sandals. Yeah, hiking's hard. It's very hard. I took my family hiking like a couple weekends ago thinking it would be just like a jolly little trek through the woods it was not i was out of breath and i was sweaty i was not oh it's too hot to hike you can't hike in the summer i mean i know there's people that do but don't count your girl in for it like i'm pretty sure that's the time when most people (laughs) no fall you know what else i can't stop thinking about what if your dog you're like okay go outside go potty and then they brought you an arm back okay Mm -hmm. so it wasn't an arm but buddy has done something similar to that what did he do so so where we used to live in louisiana on the the family road compound i I let my dog out and he comes back with like deer hind legs and what had happened was two of them two like it was still like together and he was just like excited that he found this thing. And what it was is my husband's uncle like got a deer and skinned it and all that stuff. And he just threw the carcass into the ravine. And so my dog found it. Is that how is that it. typical of disposing of yeah, carcasses? So I just think like it's it's like the woods. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Just throw it in the woods. 
something yeah. will pick it clean like your dog. Yeah. I was terrified <laughs> because I thought it was a stick. And it Did he it try to bring off. it inside? Yes. So did he get it inside and you were like, ah, get it out. No, like he he realized like I was upset, so he dropped it because he thought it was in trouble. And then when my husband got home, he like I don't even know what he did to it to this day, but he would have cracked it through a mean probably. probably he was so. just like throw this jacket. I don't know where it came from. I don't know. What if the guy? What if the Mike guy? Because I'm still on this. What if this Mike guy? They went up there like he's like, hey, I want to show you something. Like she knew him. Like maybe it was like one of those situations, or like he forced her up there. Maybe it's something like that. Or was like, I want you to come with me up here so we can talk about this, or so I can show you a cool thing, and then yeah, that happened. Or if she was, are you with her parents? And he's like, you want to talk about it? Like we can go. I know this place. We can go talk about it. (laughs) I know this place of the forty feet that you have to climb up to. I'd be like hard pass, Mike. I would have got. I would have got to the foot of that hill and been like. Absolutely I'm good. not. In and these nice. leather, yeah, like in these leather sandals. <laughs> my birthday. These are too. <laughs> uh, it, I just I mean, don't. I don't know. It's, you know, you enticed me with the serial killer theory. Like now, I cannot think of anything else because I'm just like, yep, that's the one in my head. It might be Mike. Mike I might be responsible, Mike or the serial killer. But yeah, I can't, I, the logical side of me, I can't rule out. And like, there's, cause they did like, I guess they did a tissue sample. There was this, there was this whole weird thing because they did a tissue sample and her, like the lead content in it was like off the charts. So some people thought like she had lead poisoning, which can lead to like hallucinations and stuff like that. And like, maybe that had something to do with it. But it's more likely that the lead content came from the, like, if there were, which, and that like the ground. Yeah, like, if it was, like, the soil, which is what I would think with that. Because her mom was like, no, she had a little bit of a cough that day, but she wasn't experiencing any of those symptoms, like headache, dizziness, all that crazy stuff. There's just so many. There's, like, a million theories. I could just do five episodes on just the theories surrounding this. But it's been 50 years. She deserves justice. Her family deserves justice. I'll yeah, link. Changes to a homicide. Mm-hmm. Open it back up. See what see what you can do. Like, what is or the maybe, harm in it? What is the harm in changing it to a homicide? Even if it wasn't a homicide. Like, what if there so was? Did they lose death? all the evidence too? Like, did they lose her clothes? Did they lose her? Well, the evidence the, samples. Her, her clothes had been sent to like an FBI type lab, like a federal lab. Um, but they haven't been retested because it's not a homicide. Hmm. Which is I wonder if like one of those why. independent labs would test it if they were given the ability to. Yeah, and the I they think a lot of um the uh, answers will like lie like in if there's any DNA underneath her fingernails because mm-hmm. I mean think about yeah, it would be if you're fighting someone off. Like yeah, and like they have it, on the page, the Justice for Jeanette, face, there's a Facebook page and a website, and the Facebook page is constantly sharing all of the cases that have been solved recently with DNA. And they're like, look, we can do this. Like, this is the year. Like, we can do this. I don't, I wish it were like a, like a private we firm. We say just, do it. Yeah, like, why can't a private firm come in? Because they had her arm, and it's very, like, 
gross, but they were preserving the arm because that was the only yeah solid, piece, you know, like the only piece of Ugh, evidence that like, like the chilly willies. They couldn't. They didn't have a fridge big enough at the precinct for her arm, so her arm for a period of time was just in like the company refrigerator. Ew! What? Mm-hmm. That's disgusting. This disgusting. precinct, this like police station, whatever is happening there, whoever was in charge, bad choices all around. Get that person out. Someone new should have come in and been like, we're not hanging uh, rotting clothes in the break room. We're not going to put dead arms in the refrigerator. Like these are go- normal things that you would think. And like, this is how this game of telephone would work because these people were saying, like, the rumor became, oh, yeah, they used the arm as a prank in the, like, in the fridge. They were putting it on people's food. And the officers were like, no, that was the only fridge we had that was big enough. And a guy opened it. Their arm was there. And he still ate his lunch. And they were like, wait, you're eating your lunch? Shared a spot with an arm. And he's like, yeah, bro, I'm hungry. Like, it's so weird. That's That's messed up. Mm-hmm. Are you a physician looking for a change? Consider Locum Tenens. Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, Locum Tenens might be the solution for you. LocumStory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about Locum Tenens. LocumStory.com has answers to basic questions like, what is Locum Tenens? To more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and many others. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual Locum's physicians who have firsthand Locum's experience. LocumStory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see Locum's trends for your specialty, compare different Locum's agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if Locum's is right for you. Visit LocumStory.com today to learn more about Locum tenants and see if it is right for you. I would not eat my lunch out of a fridge that had a decomposing arm in it. I would feel like I could taste it. Like, yeah. even if I couldn't, I would be like, no, it's there. Mm-mm. I would feel like that's not sanitary. <laughs> and you're very serious about the sanitary things. Speaking yeah. of which, with your power going out, did you throw all your food away? I was curious. No. So we had, um, we have a generator for the fridges. That was like the extent of it. And it wasn't even my generator. It was my in-laws. And that was a pain in the ass to get down here. But it's a very small one that they had bought in the ice storm. The other power outage we had that affected gruesome podcast. They had ordered this. When they had the ice storm, they ordered this generator. And their power was, I mean, it's the middle of winter. Their power was out forever. And by the time they got the generator, there was only like a day left without power. So now they have this like, well it came in handy it did come in handy because i was super worried because we had went to trader joe's and i had gotten a lot of stuff like they have these egg bites now and look i'll be honest i don't eat leftovers anyways so anything that's in a container can go but i was thinking of like taking my lunch to work it's like i don't do that i feel like that's a hard stance for a lot of people people are either Pro leftover or anti leftover? I am pro leftover. I will eat all the leftovers. My parents and Karen can attest to this. Made us eat leftovers so much that I cannot do it. I remember eating leftovers out of your fridge. It was awesome. It's yeah, you could have great. Great for all. 
It was, it's a free for all. AKA, we're ours was, ours was a Bell's night. Like, but mine was usually just cereal. But I, I do remember like twice so easy. I can't do it. I make exceptions for Mexican food, and that is it. <laughs> and it's not um, Mexican food I make. Like, it's Mexican food I bring home from a store. No, my husband won't eat leftovers either. I'm the only person who will eat them. So if I make, like, a lot of something, uh, it's either I'm eating it for a week or it eventually has to go out. So I try to keep my portion sizes pretty exact. Like, I'll make just for that night. We were just talking at uh, the kids' birthday parties on Sunday that my cousin was there and he was he was talking how he doesn't eat leftovers, but he won't throw it away because he lived with, well, you know, he lived with us forever. So he won't eat leftovers, but he won't throw them away from the stove. Like you have to have the obligatory, I'm going to eat this. You put it in the fridge, it sits there for a week, and then you throw it away. That's just, just what in I do. case. Just in case. Well, my husband, after nine o'clock, becomes a fucking gremlin, and he will eat all of the leftovers. You don't have to worry about that. And you don't even have to worry about it. You're like, they'll they'll go, they'll disappear I, after midnight. I had that this week. We had talked about all week. We went to Trader Joe's. I got this their buffalo chicken dip, and I was like, I can't wait to eat this. I'm so excited, Karen. We're gonna have movie night. I got blueberry goat cheese for like a charcuterie spread. This is going to be great. I'm we're going to put this buffalo chicken dip on it. And here I hear him coming out from playing his game. And he's like, hey, do you want to try this? And he hands me an empty buffalo chicken container. Like he had eaten. Oh, I mean, oh, it's not very. I was like, I was like, are you kidding I could feel it from across the room, just like the devastation. <laughs> Cut the tension with a knife. <laughs> Spoiler alert, though, they have changed things. And I tried to eat it the next day. And I was like, I don't even fucking like this anymore. <laughs> I wasn't going to tell him. that worked out okay for you. I wasn't going to tell him that, though. That's like my... you ha- Did you warn him before? Like, hey, yes. there's stuff in the dip. This is for my charcuterie board for my movie night with my sister. Don't well, touch it. We were else. We were supposed to do it when my other sister was here too, but like we didn't get around to it. So he just assumed that because that we're gonna have it. We're gonna have it. I'm like, did you know me? You know I love charcuterie boards. Like that's Oh, just have eat it. one for dinner, just for me. Personal. Yeah. A giant adult lunchable. Like that's <laughs> that is exactly what it is. We were supposed to have movie night, but I'll be honest. I went out with my sisters, and we got a pitcher of daiquiris. And Karen doesn't drink. My other sister had one, and the pitcher was gone when we were done. So I came home, and it was the first time my oldest real like I don't drink very often, and I don't drink in front of the kids. But he was still up when I got home, and it was the first time he realized that his mom was drunk. So that's a core memory. First time I saw my mom drunk. It's a core Uh memory for sure. Did he try to make you think you didn't know how old he was? Because that's what no, he just kept and saying, I feel like "You're that's so drunk." You're and so he kept, like wasn't giggling. It was hilarious. Yeah, he was. <laughs> it sounds precious. Well, you know, you he know, was like I was making him. I was like hugging him and like making him love me. And apparently, I also like dislocated his arm. Is what he told me 
it wasn't true. He was with love, traumatic. with love, with love. He's like, stop just loving me. And I'm like, no, you, you just dislocated it into a hug formation. Like you have to hug me all the time now. But you know what happens? You go to a Mexican restaurant, you drink too much margaritas, you fill up on chips and salsa, your entree comes and you barely eat it. And then you take it home and have drunk food later. And that's what I did. Was it great? It was fantastic. What did you eat later? Was it fajitas? Mm-mm. I don't do was fajitas it, from Mexican restaurants. Was it an enchilada? No, I had this like, it's pollo azteca. It's like squash and mushrooms, zucchini, chicken. Maybe it had shrimp. I honestly can't remember. And like rice and like guacamole salad. Sounds really, really good. good. It was so good. <laughs> I'm thinking about it now. It was so good. We went back yesterday and had like more Mexican. You had it again? We did. That's where my son broke his arm. Yeah. At the re- at the Mexican restaurant? Yeah. They're like, we're going to need you guys to file an incident I was report. I was trying to like dance with him to keep him like not running out the restaurant and I was holding his arms trying to shimmy and he dropped as I was shimmying. Apparently it injured his elbow. Well, not so. apparently it did. It did. He's yeah. in a full cast. He, he's in a cast. <laughs> Shout out to Dayton's children. <laughs> so he was dancing and he like threw himself to the grave. Yeah. yeah, because he does this awesome new thing now where if he doesn't want to do something, he just drops. So that yeah. way he doesn't have to go. Like a toddler. Yeah, and so I was still holding him, though, not realizing how much he was dropping. And it, like, twisted his elbow. Well, you know what it is. It's that delicate time between getting the boxes and the check when you can actually leave. The kids are done. My daughter oh, was, like, yeah. trying to cumbia, cumbia off a chair. She was like, hey. Because there is nothing yeah. that will get my daughter dropping it like it's hot than Mexican like Spanish music and it's I think it's because that's all we listen to at like our family get-togethers and she's like this means party and I'm here to party she was having a great time she was loving it like loving it well she has obviously seen you have a great time at many Mexican restaurants she knows she what has. she's like she let's knows. go <laughs> well, there's this joke that my grandma and all of her sisters because there's like a hundred of them um I told my husband the first time like he went to like a Costello family get together I was like they're going to play La Bamba and my grandma and great aunts are going to kick their shoes off and start to dance. And you just have to be prepared for them to pull you into it because it's coming. And he was like, just no, wait don't. For it. And it happens. It never fails. So now when we go to weddings, like he's up there, like he'll get hammered and be at the DJ booth, be like, play La Bamba. <laughs> play La Bamba. Get him to get their shoes off. <laughs> they call him the ants. That's like what they they're their own little cult, but the ants will, they kick their shoes off and they start to one, two step. It's awesome. It's a very fond memory I have. It sounds precious. And that's what my daughter was doing yesterday. She was kicking her shoes off, dancing at the Mexican so. My blonde haired, blue eyed, curly sued daughter. I was like, <laughs> we belong here. <laughs> We're fine. I just, mm. you have, um, 
two blonde hair, blue eyed children. And I just really like that the older one tells people that he's Mexican. He loves it. And I'm so proud of him for having like that level of pride because he is. He'll be like, well, you know, I'm Mexican. And I'm like, bro, it's like 25%. What are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? But he's proud. And he tries to, (laughs) when I take him to a restaurant, because there are, like, I can order and I've, you know, I've been around Spanish speaking family for so long. Like, I can, I can, I sound like I know what I'm talking about. Like, when I'm ordering food, he will also try to mimic that. And it is my favorite thing. One day he'll ha- he'll nail it. One day he'll get it. <laughs> He's probably gonna go to like Spain on a foreign exchange program and be like, "I too am Spanish." <laughs> it's me here, <laughs> but it's not. I mean, I have cousins who are one hundred percent Mexican and they are blonde hair, blue eyed. Really? Mm-hmm. Looks That's awesome. not uncommon. Them jeans. Just a, um, I don't know what to call it. Almost like a, it's a stereotype. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's what it is. It's a stereotype that you wouldn't be. Uh, yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> hey, go eat your leftovers out of your fridge, guys. We will I see have you. Any, I would love some. Bring me your leftovers out of your fridge. I can't. My husband probably is in there snacking on as we speak. It's 11 o'clock. Don't feed the gremlins after midnight. His friends say hear this and tell him I was talking about it, but it's fine. He probably says it every episode. He does. He's like, they were talking about you again. He's a mandatory reporter. Mm-hmm. And Discord. <laughs> on that note. Yes. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Gruesome Horrific True Crime, a Zencaster-powered podcast. Seriously, we wouldn't be here without them. Zencaster is simple to use and makes it easy to edit your own podcast. Zencaster gives you automatic, high-quality post-production sound, transcription, and HD video recordings of all of your episodes. If you want to start a podcast, and we think you should... Click the link in the show notes or at our website and use the code GRUESOME with a capital G for 30% off your first three months. We love you, beautiful strangers. And if you love us too, here are some ways that you can support Gruesome. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or a five-star rating on Spotify. This helps other true crime connoisseurs find us. Follow us at Gruesome Podcasts on Instagram or TikTok and talk to us on our posts. Join the Patreon. Sign up to join our True Crime Sticker of the Month Club and gain access to bonus episodes and exclusive Patreon perks. Or if a one-time donation is more your thing, we have a Venmo at Gruesome Podcast and a PayPal via our email, gruesomepodcast at gmail.com. Speaking of which... We love hearing from you. It seriously makes our whole life. So send us your questions, comments, suggestions, or just ask our opinion on whether that person you met on Tinder is a serial killer or not. Tune in next week and don't forget, lock your windows, lock your doors, and on Wednesdays, we're we're gruesome. gruesome. Bye. Bye.